the presentation to local domestic violence shelters has doubled during the pandemic. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Edie Sussman, who is a top brain and spine surgeon who has served as chief of the neurosurgery division at her Mayo Clinic Network affiliated Northern Hospital. She now works all over the world in her field and is also a huge advocate for screening of concussion and prevention of family violence with her own organization, Safe Living Space. Now, we have a fascinating discussion about the gap in our healthcare system and, of course, what we all should be doing for healthy brain care. Welcome to the show, Edie Sussman. How are you, Edie? Good, thank you. It's so good to see you again, and I'm so excited to have you on the show. And as you know, we're going to talk all about the brain and specifically how domestic violence is leading to concussion, which is extremely dangerous. But before we go there, I would love to know from you how you woke up one day and suddenly said, I'm going to be a brain scientist, or I should say a neurosurgeon, which you are today. How did you decide on that path? Well, I became interested in studying the brain when I was about eight years old and was just fascinated by how people think and learn. And when I went to medical school, I actually thought I'd be a neurologist. A neurologist is the doctor who does medical treatment for the brain. But then my very first day of third year, I was in the operating room and somebody drew a line and handed me a scalpel. And I enjoyed that so much that I really wanted to think How could I study the brain, but also do the surgery, which I loved? And how long does that training take? About 16 years. Wow. You you do undergraduate school and then medical school and then internship and then residency and then fellowship. And somewhere in there, you earn the, the trust and the experience to be able to be the lead surgeon for Uh, brain surgeries for aneurysms and epilepsy and tumors and spine surgeons. So essentially, you crack open somebody's head and you go in, study their brain and fix what needs to be fixed. Is that right? Is that what a brain surgeon does? (laughs) That's really the extraordinary part that there are days where we actually see the areas and use three-dimensional neuro-navigation, computer guidance to navigate in the brain. Sometimes we'll do surgery with the patient awake, where we can actually test the function as we're doing the surgery. And even with that, we still don't understand where personality is. We still don't understand where new ideas come from. And so to me, it remains a fascination even after 25 years. Mm. Well, this is a topic that is particularly sensitive to me because my mother had mental health issues and odd behavior. And my brother got Parkinson's disease when he was 50 years old, which obviously affects your nervous system. And my father and mother had dementia. So this issue, brain issues, I think, 
really, if you break it all down, affects a lot of families around the world and creates a lot of trauma. So to finish off on your sort of day-to-day work, which I find fascinating, once you're in there and you're in the brain, how do you know how to sort of navigate around and fix you know, the issues, I guess you remove tumors. Like, aren't you so scared of like slicing something off that you're not supposed to be slicing? I mean, I guess you learned this at medical school. But I, I was going to say, I think that's where the 16 years come oh. in. I think that's why our training is, you know, longer and more arduous than almost any, any other specialty. And, you know, I also think it's a privilege and an honor. And I think we're all really humble, recognizing that we need to understand more. But at this time, we've got some really advanced imaging techniques. We've got three-dimensional computer guidance, and then we've got the ability to map the brain so that we really do have a sense of what's the safest way to approach a tumor. And Kate, there are times where we have to leave tumor behind because we know that it would lead to an irreversible and unacceptable change in someone's quality of life. So a lot of the decisions that we make usually before surgery, have to do with what the patient wants. Mm. Now, you are a particular advocate of identifying concussion issues, specifically for women who have been in gender-based violence, domestic violence situations. Tell us about that journey and why you chose this, because from my understanding of your work, which I think is incredible, you, like us, recognized a gap and a shortfall of this particular issue. So tell us about that journey and and, and why you do that. So as a neurosurgeon, we take care of patients who've had car accidents and hit their head, falls, you know, broken necks, skull fractures. So I've taken care of patients with concussions from, from day one of my career in my training as a neurosurgeon. In fact, it was neurosurgery that wrote the guidelines for concussion that are currently being used in the NFL and in sports. So trauma and traumatic brain injury, one type of traumatic brain injury is concussion, has always been a focus and an interest in an area of expertise that myself and other neurosurgeons have developed. When I started our concussion clinic at North Bay Medical Center in Fairfield, we realized that instead of seeing car accidents and falls, we were seeing women and who were victims of domestic violence. And that was a new population. There is very little research, very little science to support or help us understand concussion in domestic violence. But it makes sense because people tell us when they share their story, they tell us they were pushed or choked and strangled or shaken or punched. And if those stories came forward, let's say in a bar fight or as the result of a fall or sports injury, absolutely, we would scream for concussion. So the gap is that when it was in the context of domestic violence, it didn't get the same level of care and the same level of expertise. And so I think that's the gap that's really aligned with your goals as well. Mm. So is it also because women are embarrassed they feel shame about what is happening to them, why they're not getting screened or checked? You know, I think there are so many psychological issues when you're not safe in your home, 
There's so many social issues when you're not sure how to start your life over and pay your bills. But I think the piece that my team brings to the table, almost for the first time, there's some literature over the last 20 years, but I think the work that we've been doing is, is going to really open that conversation. We're bringing on the piece of how's the brain of this individual working and where, when this person comes to attention, they get help, they call the police, they go to a shelter, they go see their doctor, their OBGYN. Mm-hmm. How does that system know to say, you know, you really seem forgetful or you're your affect, your emotions seem very flattened, or your balance seems off, or it seems like it's hard for you to organize. Right now, all of those are being considered psychological, that you're feeling bad about yourself, you're in a bad situation. If I saw that patient after a car accident or a sports injury, we'd say concussion, 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 concussion. We'd evaluate the brain. So I think that's the lens that we want to bring to this women's health crisis. Mm. And what are some of the things that we should be thinking about doing to set up that call to action that if you are experiencing abuse of any type, what are some of the things that the existing infrastructure in the medical world can do? Well, we have guidelines and a terrific evaluation for people who are playing football and sports where we're watching for concussion, we're pulling them out. Why are they pulling people out of a game and not just letting them go back in if they're a little bit dizzy or confused or wobbly? And it's because the second injury can even be worse for the brain than the first. And I think the way we want to bring this forward to individuals to advocate for themselves is to say, look, if you've had one concussion, you need to be absolutely safe away from any sort of harm. Just like our kids playing sports, we wouldn't let them go back to play soccer if they're concussed. Why is it then that an individual, often a woman, would stay in a situation to get even more brain injuries and concussions. And that truly leads to brain damage. Right now, the science supports between four and six lifetime concussions leads to a six-fold increase of Alzheimer's, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, Parkinson's. Many of these patients have the inability to get a job, to organize, to pay their bills as a result of the recurring brain injury. So Kate, as far as I'm concerned, any violence needs to be called out. And with my area of expertise, any concussion, somebody needs to get out of that situation immediately until their thinking is clear and they can reevaluate. I would imagine that during the pandemic, this has grossly increased as well. I know that, you know, due to the lockdown and people losing jobs and, you know, just general frustration and being homebound, that these cases dramatically increased. Is that right? The current statistic is that they've doubled, that the presentation to local domestic violence shelters has doubled during the pandemic. So you had told me about an aha moment for you that involved sunglasses. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, one of the things that I've really prided myself on as a woman neurosurgeon, one of the first 100 in the nation, is taking a more diverse perspective to healthcare in general. And with that, I thought, you know, I'm not a biased person. I treat everybody 
based on how they come and don't make a gender difference. But when I was in my own clinic, I recall seeing a man who came in with a, you know, jogging suit wearing his dark glasses. And we always think of somebody wearing dark glasses inside as having light sensitivity or photophobia, a medical condition. And I think later that same day, I saw a woman come in as a result of domestic violence and she was wearing dark glasses. And I was thinking what I learned in medical school, that she was embarrassed, that she was trying to cover up the bruising. And I had that aha moment where you think, why is it that a man wearing dark glasses, I thought it was a medical condition. And a woman wearing dark glasses, I thought it was something related to an emotional situation or feeling embarrassed. And that was really my aha moment where I said, we've got to take an objective lens. We can't judge one group of symptoms as emotional and psychological and the exact same group of symptoms in a man playing sports or in a man in a car accident as medical, as coming from the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, with recent events watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which the world was watching, it is interesting because it does go both ways, right? When we talk about domestic violence, you know, men can also suffer as much as women. In your opinion, what message do you think that trial has given the world? Well, I think the most important thing is that it calls out that when people are unsafe in a relationship, whether it's a male and female, if it's an LGBTQ plus relationship, if you are physically or emotionally being harmed by a relationship, call the domestic violence hotline, get help, talk to friends and family, talk to your physicians. And so to me, I feel like we have to understand that not everyone goes home to a place of refuge. Not everyone feels comfort and safety in their own home. And I think that was one of the reasons that we really you know, thought about safe living space and thought about, you know, what can we do so that home is a safe place for everyone? Mm. A lot of people have been saying that Amber Heard has set us back by just the whole situation. I mean, I personally watched it and felt like each side has, you know, they were in a toxic relationship and whether it's physical abuse or emotional abuse or verbal abuse, they were both at it. But a lot of people are saying that, you know, she set women back by, you know, what happened. And, you know, I don't need you to comment on it. But, you know, I was definitely torn watching it because obviously I'm a huge female activist. And, you know, I focus night and day on healthcare and, you know, things like ending domestic abuse and watching that extremely high profile trial really made me question a lot of things. You know, it was proven on the stand that she'd been lying. And, you know, where does that put us, you know, in society where we've been fighting so long for equal rights and the Me Too movement and whatnot. So, yeah, it's certainly a moment that's going to go down in history on our journey to equality. So you had mentioned some of the long-term effects of concussion, whether it be Alzheimer's or brain damage and not being able to hold down a job and so on. What are some of the ways when you have been diagnosed with concussion, what are some of the things that you can do to get your brain health back? Well, I think the first and most important thing is 
to prevent any new concussions. And I want to add in strangulation. Whether there's strangulation with changes in oxygen and blood flow to the brain, whether there's violent shaking, whether there's other types of injury to the head and neck area, all of those are bad for your brain and all of those need to be identified as never events. The key though is if there is an event like that, sometimes you don't know it, who you're with or where you are. The key is to help use a platform like yours to let people know that the second one is often the one that makes it irreversible. And then after that, it's an invisible injury. There might not be any bruises, yet there's compounding brain injury. And so now that we have very good pathways of care for you know, people to either work on recovering skills that may have been either temporarily or permanently changed. We have the ability to learn collateral ways to solve problems. And we also have ways to use different resources. You know, if you're forgetful, do you write things down right away? So you can use three different lines of intervention to help people recover, but certainly you want to start that recovery with the least amount of injury. There are people who have had too much injury. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not reversible. Once you have it, once you have the brain injury, you have it for life and you have to prevent more damage is what you're saying. You have to prevent more damage. I want to be very open though. It is often reversible, which is why I would ask anyone who now hearing your podcast in retrospect says, boy, you know, when I was a little kid, this happened, or when I was dating someone, this happened, or this happened last week. I want all of those folks to think about whether this could be a concussion, share this with their doctors, and eventually maybe be seen by a concussion expert because there is care that's available. Now, over the years, I've heard some monstrosity stories of parents shaking their children or shaking their babies, which has often led to death of that baby or that toddler. Why does that happen? As in, why does that, when you shake a child, why does that lead to such severe injuries? And this touches me because I've seen those babies. I've been their doctor. I've seen the brain swelling and the hemorrhage within the brain. I've seen babies in coma then pass. And so there are two ways that shaking a baby or a partner can lead to brain injury. And one is the stretch of the axons, the nerves between the neck and the head. And if there is disruption or uh, stretching in that area, that can lead to neurologic damage. And then also the brain sits within a fluid-filled casing within the skull. And there are times where the shaking leads to an injury on the inside of the skull, where the brain hits and impacts the skull itself. And so both of those mechanisms may play a role in why that is such a devastating condition. Mm. And sadly, with a lot of these cases that you hear about, it really is linked to mental health issues where the mother or the father, whoever's doing the shaking, has not had access to 
treatment because, you know, when you shake a child, you're obviously at a very, very low point or you just, you know, haven't had the help that you need personally to be able to cope. And I feel like, you know, the world that we live in today, mental health issues are like a pandemic. You know, if you hear about the shootings that are happening and, you know, obviously, you know, gun control is is one huge, massive issue that we need to get under control. But these people who are mass shooting have mental health issues and the access to affordable, available treatment for mental health issues is very, very new to this world. And it's certainly unavailable to low income communities. Yeah, unquestionably. And what we've seen is the incidence of child abuse and family violence, domestic abuse can be the predecessor, the what happened before the mental health issues. One of the number one things that people who are in car accidents or sports injuries, any sort of traumatic brain injury is drug and alcohol abuse. It's a setup for drug and alcohol abuse. At this point, 90% of women in prison have had recognized traumatic brain injury. 60% of men in prison have had recognized traumatic brain injury. The group we're talking about, they're hidden. They aren't coming forward. They may have had multiple brain injuries. And so one of the things that I was thinking about listening to the Amber Heard case is what was their experience? What led them to the point where there was so much chaos you know, clear evidence of issues of mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the brain, which is an absolutely fascinating organ. And, you know, we've talked about concussion from domestic abuse instances. Where do you feel that we are with our scientific research about brain conditions in general? Because We still struggle, again, it's personal for me, we still struggle with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, you know, brain damage. My mother was also an alcoholic, and that led her to have multiple strokes where her brain just, I think, got fried and her body gave up. So where are we in advancements in that regard? So we are doing wonderfully. It is, it is now very easy to diagnose a concussion. We have you know, online concussion screening tools. We have the ability to image the brain using very detailed MRI scanning to look for areas of brain injury. And so I think with the concussion and with the brain damage and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, we're really moving forward on the diagnostics. I agree with you that I'm I'm very excited to know that great science is being done to get new and additional therapies. One of the one that my clinic offers is called transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS. We're cutting edge. We're looking at helping the brain heal. But I just want to take it back a little bit that if we can help children grow up with a good, healthy brain, would we decrease ADHD, which is known to be part of a brain injury picture? Would we decrease drug and alcohol use? Can we help people with their mental health? One of the number one things that we see in the mental health realm after traumatic brain injury from any source, whether it's in the home or something that happened in the community, it's a feeling of helplessness. 
It's a feeling of depression. It's a feeling that you're out of control of your life. And I would just want to say that when we start doing concussion screening, the way we are currently for sports, the estimate is that we're going to find 1.6 million new concussions as a result of screening in domestic partner and family violence. And to your mom's story, what if that ends up leading to a different chain of events and a different downstream quality of life? And for me, I think we can only, only hope and pray that by calling things out and keeping people safe in their home, protecting their brain health, are there a subset of people, your brother with Parkinson's, your mom with Alzheimer's, who then can have a better chance? I feel like I want to highlight a little bit more about what you said on the call to action, because I am a huge believer in the linkages between health services, right? As in, you've got this specialist who specializes in eating disorders. Then you've got this specialist that specializes in, you know, domestic violence and giving shelter. And then you've got this specialist who, uh, you know, is a gynecologist and, how can we create those linkages that everyone starts to inform each other? Because that's not happening right now. And if my mother, who actually, she developed bipolar disorder, which is obviously also in the brain, you know, went to her GP, why didn't her GP say to her, okay, you need to go and do this, this, and this, and pass her along to get the help that she needed, which she never got. The divide between the mental health world and the MDDO, if you want to call it the physical world, for me as a brain surgeon, it's all in the brain. To your point, the bipolar, the addiction, and the Alzheimer's, it's all one thing in the brain directed and related. And we've actually seen that as well. We've found that a lot of psychologists will actually push back and say, well, you know, of course they're stressed because they have a, a very, you know, difficult home environment. And they're reluctant to say that there could actually be primary brain injury. So, Kate, that's where folks like you come in. I know. Down the, breaking down the silos, <laughs> building yeah. a sense of community, creating a space for crosstalk and collaboration. For our neuroscience center, the Piedmont Neuroscience Center in Oakland, We've put psychiatry, neurology, and neurosurgery all together because I think we see that when there's a brain injury, there are all of those elements. They're not, they're not separate. They're not in silos. And thank you for calling that out. I, I think it's probably the most difficult part that we have in, in addressing this gap. I feel like there's so much hope, though, because, you know, being a survivor of you know, a family with a lot of issues and working in healthcare for the last, you know, couple of decades, I have noticed a shift in talking about this stuff, owning it. You know, really, I would say in the last 10 years, I've noticed in the workforce, for instance, where, you know, employees of mine have come forth and said, I'm suffering with depression or, you know, I have anxiety. You know, back in the day, that was never discussed. You were appeared to be weak if you were getting beaten up at home, right? So, of course, you're not going to come forward and say, you know, I, my husband's been whacking me around, right? <laughs> you're not going to do that. But I feel now we're at the sort of 
cutting edge of the tipping point of people feeling comfortable with talking about it. And thank you for that. Thank you for the work you're doing. I really do feel like it's been the effort of our social entrepreneurs, of our people who have a national and world platform to really raise this issue up. And to me, if we can reach individuals, they're online self-screening tools. They can download the tool. They can do it on their phone. They can erase it from their history. So if they're in a controlling environment and then they know if they have concussion, they're empowered. And they can bring that to their provider. They can bring that to their psychologist, to their OBGYN and say, look, I screen positive for concussion. I don't want to end up with all of the downstream harms. And I also don't want to be impatient with my own kids. I think somebody who's suffering from a concussion is more quick to anger. We know that from our traumatic brain injury patients. Well, I think you raise a good point, and I know you have two children. We've talked about your kids who are two incredible human beings of what they're doing, giving back to the world. And this brings up the next point, and that is if we're really going to break the cycle, it is up to us as parents to talk openly to our children about the risks. I mean, I can't tell you so many times I'll say to my daughter, you know what? You eat too much sugar you get diabetes. You eat too much fat, you can get heart disease. If you don't wear a helmet, you can have concussion. Like these are all things that we should be talking to our children about. And I am such a believer that if we as parents are informed and educated, then that will pass on to our children so that having ADHD or whatever issue that you have, they feel okay to talk about it and get the help that they need. Well, just, just brilliant. And really what you're, what you're laying out is something that right now, as I'm sitting here is inspiring me because how do we make a difference, right? How do we create a global change where just like right now with the NFL, you know, everybody's getting screened. Why is it that 20 million people in the United States alone living with today, domestic partner, family violence, why is it that 20 million people have no screening? They have no ability to call that out and, and have, that, have that raised. And so what you're saying is let's educate the people in the present, but now let's invest in the future. Let's make it a one-generational problem. We've got the problem. We're going to do the best we can, but now let's make it so there isn't another generation that has to handle these things. If you think about it and you look at some of the stats, now, what did you tell me? Evidence-based research, 58.8% of people who have suffered from a domestic violence situation actually have concussion. Did I get that right? Have sustained at least one concussion. That's a huge number. If almost 60% of everyone, that means that 60% at least of people in a domestic violence shelter of people who are calling the domestic violence hotline, of people who are engaged with the police or with Mm. attorneys uh, Mm. in the family law circumstance have sustained at least one concussion. So this is where the linkages are so important. If a policeman goes to investigate a domestic violence situation, he should be immediately issuing a clinic test for the person involved to get a concussion screening. If you think about it, this is a higher 
rate than breast cancer is. So why do we have a mammogram every year or every two years, whatever it is, and we're not doing concussion tests for people in domestic violence situations or high risk? And also, you know, love our football players, but I mean, I'm sorry, there's much higher percentage of women in abusive relationships that are getting concussion than football players are. Yes. And in the police situation, one of the things that that we found is that they find these domestic violence cases very difficult to prosecute because they take a story and they always say the story changes. And so I'm a doctor. I'm not a police officer. I'm not in the field. And so I asked, well, did you screen for concussion before you took the history, before you took the report? And they're like, no. And I said, well, what if the person that you took the report from was actively concussed and truly not remembering? And the reason the story changes isn't because of factors that are volitional, like they're trying to hide the story. What if they just don't remember because they're concussed? And it's it's important for another reason in that if there's a concussion identified, it changes misdemeanor assault to felony assault. And there's so many more protections for the women. There's even more funds for access to health care. So I do feel like identifying this gap and pushing this information out, I think it's going to help improve lives and quality of life. Mm. So you went as far to, based on all your incredible work and research, you formed your own organization. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we started Safe Living Space in the most humble way, just to say, how can we educate people to this gap? We did our research as good doctors and scientists, and we presented our research at Stanford and the, the American Association of Neurological Surgeons and working on publications. But literally, the number of people who would see that it would be, you know, dozens or hundreds. And if this issue is affecting millions of people, it needed a different platform. So we created safelivingspace.org. On our advisory board are people who worked in the FBI, people who are pediatricians, people who work in veterinary medicine, because would you believe that there's a very strong correlation between animals who are abused and women and children in the home who are abused? So really looking at all the places that we can put out information to begin advocating. We've worked educating the LAPD, the domestic violence hotline. We worked on the Violence Against Women Act. So I do feel like there's more awareness. And it's interesting because most people, when you tell them that, you know, there are concussions in domestic violence, they're like, of course there are. Like it, it gets, it's like common sense to think that when somebody's hit or pushed or bruised, that there would be injuries like concussion. Yet we don't have anybody who's reliably screening or evaluating for that. So just to say, it's a multidimensional problem. And we hope that the words of and the education of safe living space can begin to move that forward. Very quickly, when you go to have a a concussion scan, does your head go into one of those like caves and how long does it take and how long does it take to get the results? Amazing question. So concussion is a clinical diagnosis. It's made in the office by doing assessments of the thinking part of the brain and the physical balance and coordination part of the brain. There can be vision changes associated with it and hearing imbalance changes. So concussion 
can often be invisible in imaging studies. Abbott Labs right now is working on a drug test that we think will be very helpful in the coming years. There are better and better imaging studies, but right now, if you currently have had a violent situation where head and neck was involved, you wanna go in and be evaluated for concussion. If there aren't any ongoing symptoms, they'll do a quick CAT scan, two minutes in and out of the scanner looking for bleeding. If there's no bleeding, it doesn't mean you don't have a concussion because the brain may still not be working. And then if the symptoms persist for six weeks or more, we usually do an MRI scan. And that, take, that can take somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes to look at the more details of the brain. But first and foremost, in 2022, concussion is a diagnosis made by medical experts. So I have two brain questions. First of all, how bad is alcohol for the brain? I always used to be told by my mother that alcohol, severe alcohol, shrinks your brain, which doesn't surprise me. But is that true? Unquestionably. So first, if there is somebody who has any other brain issue, alcohol can serve as a toxin. So for people who are recovering from an injury, it's like a double injury. It's like you're injuring and harming the cells that need to re reestablish. And then for folks who have a long-term alcohol use, we see shrinkage of the brain on our MRI scans, on our CAT scans. We see areas where there's not only atrophy, but there's also specific loss of function um, in the cerebellum for balance and coordination. And it's just a feed forward cycle. Now, the second question is, does your brain repair the brain cells that have been killed by drug use or alcohol use if you stop? Yeah. <laughs> or have a break? Because a lot of people do these, you know, fasting periods where they're like, okay, it's dry January or whatever they call it. Does your brain repair itself or is that a waste of time? And I think there are two answers. The first is... You know, when we think of a broken bone, we really know that our body can heal bones as, as good as new. And if there's a cut on the skin, it heals. The brain doesn't heal like that. In general, once you're an adult, you've got what you've got. And any cells that are injured or lost, it's very rare that we'll actually see replacement and regrowth. And I want to say that to be cautious on the injury side, but I also feel like there's a lot of hope on the repair side. But it can't be episodic. It's got to be keeping your brain safe, learning compensatory skills, building up the parts of your brain that are working to compensate for the parts that aren't. I think one of the problems we get into is there are folks who have some brain injury from alcoholism or accidents, and they kind of do okay for a while. You know, they, they keep it together. Yeah. They keep it working. It's called functioning alcoholic. But functioning. what is it doing to you? And then there's a threshold where there's no longer the ability to compensate. And that can be age-related. It can be another injury. It can be a mental health issue. And then all of a sudden, there isn't the ability to compensate. And that's when we see, I mean, it's, it's a dreadful scenario because then we see self-harm, we see homelessness, we see people who are no longer safe, no longer able to care for themselves. And I do feel like the conversation we're having, Kate, is the hope. It's the before. It's can we start these conversations, create an environment for safe space to talk about mental, mental health issues, injury in one's home? And now can we prevent those downstream lifelong harms? 
You know, again, I will reiterate, so much can be done from parents of the next generation. You know, just yesterday I was sitting in the car with my daughter and we were talking about music and, you know, a Queen song came on and then a Michael Jackson song came on and then another song came on and she she was like, oh, I don't know them. I'm like, well, they've all died. And they, you know, they died of drugs and alcohol and or HIV AIDS, which was, you know, because they were having promiscuous sex. And it's it's a way to have those conversations with your kids that is digestible and relatable and your storytelling instead of, you know, well, smoking's gonna kill you. Like find ways to talk to your kids about these issues. And so Edie, you're doing the most incredible job. You are brilliant. And for everyone who's been inspired by our conversation, we are so thrilled that that Dr. Sussman is joining the advisory board of the Body Agency. And we will have a way for you to get in touch, whether it's partnering with her organization or getting some form of counsel or a referral if you are sadly uh, suffering with domestic abuse issues, she will be quite happy to connect you with the right specialist. So Edie, this has been an, such a fascinating conversation. I could speak to you for hours on end and you do incredible work. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I'm looking forward to continuing to break these taboos, raise awareness and solve these problems that we're working on together. And thank you for your inspiring work. Take care and I'll look forward to being on your team. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.